Welcome to The Lisa Show, where we take a good look at life. How you live your life online is never more important than the way it influences your kids. We don't have any other generation to look back on for advice, and we're making it up as we go for sure. But there are so many benefits for taking the time to pause and ask ourselves better questions when we look at how we can both protect kids from online threats and also help them build a sustainable relationship with technology and their online presence. On today's episode, I've got the Council of Moms with the cold, hard realities of parenting when your kids know more about this than you do, and how it works differently in neurodivergent families. My friend, parenting teens expert and author of the popular 52 Modern Manners, Brooke Romney, is going to share about building relationships of trust when it comes to technology and what it looks like when accountability goes both ways. And Trent Ray from the Cyber Safety Project has some research-backed methods for approaching technology as a family. So first, here's what I learned the hard way. And it's okay, you can laugh at me, it's fine. I for sure am. When my oldest kid was around eight, he asked me for a gaming system. And I can't remember which one because there's so many and we've had so many and also it doesn't matter. And I felt very torn because I don't personally value these games. But more than that, I knew that because he was the oldest, the first. I was establishing a precedence, right, forever. This would become a pattern. I would for sure feel more of the mom guilt with my older kids. And isn't that just the way it always is? I really feel like birth order affects a lot of how your kids grew up. And so the first as well, you know, the first to want the video game system and the tech and certain clothes and curfew hours, you know. And as a parent, you haven't really established what your family does. I mean, maybe in theory, but not in practice yet. So when my oldest wanted a gaming system, I was like, I don't know. I hate video games, but are they bad? I don't know. I mean, they could be. Everyone seems to tell me to put it off as long as possible. Is this now? He really pushed, and I really wanted him just to not be that weird kid, you know, the only one who didn't have the video games at home. I don't know. I hated the pressure, and it's a weird situation because he really wanted it, and I felt this guilt I didn't like. And I really thought I was this cool, independent mom that didn't care what other people thought, but it turns out that I did. And what's funny, funny in a, well, we'll always find something to criticize mothers for a way, is I felt pressure from some friends and social groups to get the gaming system and pressure from other friends and social groups to not get the gaming system. Oh, the joys of being a mom. Now, honestly, with my younger kids, I really don't care. I know I have their best interest at heart. I know it's best of my kids. And frankly, I'm too concerned about them to worry about anybody else and what they're doing or thinking about me as a mom or my kids. And plus, I'm really tired. It's none of my business. But what's interesting, again, interesting, and uh, we'll always find something to worry about as mom's way, is that with ever-changing technology, gaming systems, and social media platforms, there will always be something we didn't see coming, coming earlier than we anticipated. And it's a lot of pressure to know how to handle it, especially when the stakes are high, keeping our kids safe. In our safety episode, we got to hear Trent Ray from the Cyber Safety Project talk about protecting our kids online and what to look out for. And he perfectly summarized this weird spot the parents are in. 
There becomes a pressure for parents. Young people coming home from school saying, oh, everyone else is using TikTok, why can't I? And I want to watch this video, I want to play this game. And you know, they want to be part of the conversation at school and then they're coming home and wanting to use these technologies. So there are those pressures. Does that sound familiar? And I highly doubt those kids have any idea that we're caught in the middle like this, that when they ask to use this new platform, gadget, service, site, whatever, we're torn between wanting them to live their best lives and flashbacks to old Dateline episodes and statistics that we've heard but we now can't remember and the nagging feeling that however much media we give them, mom guilt is right around the corner. So let's start with the Council of Moms. I've got my friends Amy and Casey here. It became clear as we got into this topic that as moms, we had some very different knee-jerk reactions to technology in those early days. I think our older kids, they were coming of age when this was starting to get going. And then I've got younger, a younger daughter who I don't know that she's known any reality that hasn't included some sort of social media. And so it's been interesting parenting both of those age groups. But my approach with my daughter has mainly been through the lens of safety. When you're putting things out, are you keeping yourself safe? Not just physically safe, but emotionally safe. And that, the same goes for, like, who you're following. Is this going to make you a happier version of yourself? Is this going to keep you physically safe? Um, and kind of going at it from that lens has been, at least for me, the most helpful way of doing it with her. You are so great. <laughs> I was just a cowboy out in the Wild West making my stupid Twitter jokes and posting my stupid photos to make people like Lisa laugh. It worked. Oh, it worked. You performed a service. But You're then so funny. I was, I never, I mean, I am thinking about it now, articulated a real parenting policy about it because I was just doing it and loving it and blogging and this is so funny and my little kids can't read it doesn't matter like I didn't have the foresight until they all started I don't understand language. the language they're speaking like I don't I have my kids will come up and be like oh I'm on this and this and I did that I'm like what language are you well, speaking? And learning have, it is a, like a part-time job. Oh, it's it, always it is. emerging and it's like what's your policy <laughs> oh to limit them time and app wise only to find out five years later they were on it, <laughs> mm -hmm. and they had they had Snapchat the whole time. Yeah, they're on it ten you, hours a day, and you didn't know. Or you have a it. policy to do whatever, and then oh, surprise! It's COVID, and you have to be on the yes. computer, and you are buying oh. them all switches so that they can play games with each other and be on Discord so they have some human connection. Like yeah, so they're it's not always depressed. Yeah. Change. yeah, yeah, because they're so depressed. And That's so, one of big. It's one. like I don't have a policy. It's always changing. It, it's like what did I catch them doing? <laughs> What You're did not I, wrong. What, yeah. did some, what did I find out about? And none of my kids aren't even bad. It's just no. they know how to do stuff. Mm -hmm. Things change all the time. And it's changing so quickly. It's so much work also to monitor it. I think you should do it and you should try. But, like, the policy must be fluid. And it must be based, I think, on open communication. Yeah. It, the whole hiding things, and I hate that, and it's a part of their development of trying to be able to establish themselves as their own right yeah, identity and, we and everything about like that. hiding apps from Miles. He's the one that taught us about the my, app that hides apps. <laughs> my, yeah, my <laughs> oldest kid told me, and he was like, you got to check for this and that. And I was like, okay, show me how to. And with the intent on having them be safe, and I thought it was all going to come from safety 
safety too, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I would say, don't ever give out your personal information. And don't. And they would look at me like I was the idiot. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, they teach us that in first grade. Like, yeah. where have you been? Oh, yeah. And, I and thought they, that was such a big I thing. I thought that was such a big I thing. I found out today that my son, who is a young adult, who rides the bus and is one of the frequent riders, so he's on a leaderboard for like frequent use. Okay. He's on there as— Wait, they have a leaderboard get for ready to bleep. riding the bus? Yeah. Uh, Lord farts. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so these kids, they're awesome. already, like, they know more about, like, hiding their identity. And they're not embarrassed. And you just mm-hmm. found they're out. They're not ashamed to be known. I mean, they're just. <laughs> and, and, and if you say this will impede your uh, ability to get a job in the future, they look at you like, what are you talking about? If I became internet famous, I, yeah. can, I can. I'm going to apply. I'm going right, to be Lord I'll, farts on LinkedIn. <laughs> And not and get hired about it, and not not get a job. Yeah. Like all of our threats from 10, 20 years ago, it's outdated. It's outdated. As someone who's been around for a while and made all the mistakes, I'm starting to think maybe we're asking the wrong questions. I mean, my kids will tell me point blank that I'm asking the wrong questions. But our expert, Trent Ray, pointed out that a lot of parents ask him, well, how much time should my child be spending online? Which comes from fear and maybe the hope that a single number or limit is going to solve this. But as a cyber safety, emotional wellness, children's educator, someone who spends all day in the complexity of this issue, he wants parents to shift their focus to a more nuanced question. And one of the things that we kind of put back in as a question is, well, how is your child using the technology? You know, is it that they're consuming with technology? So, or are they are they being creative and, and productive with technology? Because they're two different things that we're doing with that technology. So I think it's really important to be knowing not just about screen time, but also screen use and how we're engaging with those tools. And then monitoring our kids and finding out how they're feeling when they're jumping off online. Because uh, we're seeing a really big rise in young people coming off the internet, feeling sad or poor about themselves. Um, So around 44% of kids tell us that they feel sad or poorly about themselves after checking social media. Um, And the algorithm has a big part to play in that. And it's really, I guess, um, feeding them uh, content that's going to keep them hooked or or engaged for longer. But it can also be feeding them harmful content without really, um, I guess, and, and slowly over time. So that's a really big area that I think we need to be focusing on and really bringing our attention to as well. This advice from Trent sounds so helpful. Checking in with our kids in the moment that they're putting down their devices and helping them identify what they're feeling sounds like a great way to equip our kids with the skills that they'll need to manage their own usage. I had a conversation with Brooke Romney where she described doing something just like this. I have an 11 year old and um, he was just telling me that he felt like it'd be very important for him to be able to get a phone next year. And we have some different plans for that. And he was very frustrated. And then we got to talking and going a little bit deeper into things. And I said, do you believe that me and dad really want you to live your very best life? And he was like, yes. And I said, do you trust us that we want to do the things that will help you live a life that is happy and fulfilling and connected? And he was like, yes. And I think for me, that's the first step with our kids is helping them understand, especially with the phone and when it happens and how it happens and all those things um, that we really are on their team. 
a lot of it for me, I love, love, love helping them understand that I am no different than they are. Yeah. I say, it's really, really hard for me to get off my phone at nighttime. It's really hard for me to go to bed. Yeah. Once I start the scroll, like, who knows? All of a sudden, it's, it's 1230, and I wanted to be in bed by 11. Um, I say things like, yeah, I've noticed when I'm, when I'm using my phone a lot, I'm not reading. And I love to read. My kids love to read. You know, that's taking time away from reading. Or I'll say something like, you know, I didn't do a great job today. I was really distracted by my phone. And I didn't really connect with you guys. And that doesn't feel good. It feels better when our family's connecting. So helping them see that, like, these problems aren't just teen problems or kids' problems. These are technology problems. And, and we get sucked in just like they do. And so I often will tell my kids that the reason why they have parents is because they're not quite capable of making all the decisions they need to for themselves. And so when I say things like, you have to plug my phone, your phone in to our bedroom at nighttime, instead of it being like, you don't trust me, it's that, no, I know exactly how we all feel when we're tired. I know what happens online at night when there's no parameters and when there's no oversight. And I don't want you to have to deal with that right now. That's not fair of me to have a 13-year-old boy have to navigate a million social situations and you know, people being unkind or asking for things you're not comfortable with. That's not, that's not fair for me to turn all that over to you at 13. Something I love about the approach Brooke described is that she was so vulnerable in that conversation, highlighting her own struggle with limiting her use of technology in order to keep the dialogue open with their kids and build their awareness. And when each kid is so different, it makes sense that how much you monitor and intervene has to be based on the individual child's need. Amy is mother to neurodivergent kids, and that means tailoring her approach even more. So all three of my kids have some form of neurodivergent um, things. Um, the biggest one is my daughter. So we'll go back to my youngest. So she's got she's got a global learning disability. She has an auditory processing disorder. Um, and there's a little, you know, a few other things back in there. And so I do parent her differently than I do my my boys. Also, there's as much as I hate this because you you know me. There's a gender thing. There's a much different way that women and girls interact online than boys interact, and so um, that has been another piece of that puzzle. Um, but one of and this is kind of why I went to the safety thing because one of the things that my daughter cannot see, she thinks she's invincible, and I think that's also kind of a typical teen thing. But she also doesn't understand that people can be fake online. She really honestly thinks that like everything that's been put out there is is real. Like people are always being real. And so it's been very hard for me to say that 14-year-old boy that you think you're texting, he could be a 47-year-old man living in Ohio. And she will not believe me because she's like, "But no, mom. Why would he lie?" He posted a picture of himself mm-hmm. and he's 14. And I was like, do you want me to go on the internet and find you a picture of a 14-year-old boy? Because I can, and I can post that. And and so it's been really, um, it's been a different experience trying to navigate that with her. And for me, it's repetition. It's just making sure. And I, you know, I follow her a little bit more closely than I did my boys. And um, one of the things that I did when she first got on social media was um, I linked her account to mine. So anything she posted and anything anyone posted or messaged her, because that was the big one was messaging, 
I was able to see. And we've sort of scaled back on that as she's become more adept at navigating online herself. But, um, and I didn't apologize for that. I, I said, if you want to be on these platforms, here's the rule. Here's the rule. Mm-hmm. And the rule is I have to see everything that you are are posting and everything's, everything that people are posting with you. And um, and I got a lot of, well, not a lot. I got some pushback from from people that were saying, well, that's an invasion of her privacy. And I was like, well, mm. it's really not. Um, because I was doing what I needed to do to parent my child. And it might be different for someone who had a neurotypical kid who could understand that people were being dishonest or people were trying to, like, that people were actively trying to deceive Right. And she, I mean, she's had, we've had some pushback. I'm not going to lie and say that she accepted that and was like, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also became a very good detective <laughs> because of the hidden stuff. Like, yeah. And also the other thing that I do is I make her turn her phone in at night, which I got a lot of pushback from other people too. I can't help but notice some of the similarities between what Amy and Brooke shared. Keeping an open dialogue for one, but also knowing the hard limits of their kids' ability to self-supervise and setting them up to succeed by introducing parameters, like no phones in the bedroom or after this time at night, while they worked up the muscles of making good choices online. Trent gave some great examples of things families can do to help kids graduate into safe online habits in an age-appropriate way. So if you do have a group chat with your children as a family, showing them ways that you can improve communication by modeling that in the group chat, maybe doing that before you allow them to be in group chats with their friends so that you can practice skills together before going into those spaces where they're maybe more uncharted or less monitored. What a great way to model online behavior in a family setting. Having conversations about being part of a society and a community. In the same ways that we're addressing social skills and bullying, we have to address that for an online space. A lot of kids who are new to the internet may feel like this is a different universe. But teaching responsibility and standing up for yourself, reaching out to an adult when you need help, be nice to strangers because we live in a society. Social responsibility has to be part of the dialogue. In the same vein, Trent pointed out that kids know about cyberbullying, but it takes parents and loved ones to help them apply that information to themselves. I think there, young people um, know about cyberbullying. They know that there's, it's, it happens. We know it exists online. Um, in Australia, particularly through the data that we collect, we know that between 9 and 15% of young people are cyberbullied and 50% of kids receive negative comments online. And interesting, a lot of that commentary or those behaviours are happening between friendship groups or people that they know. Um, so that, that's, I think, one of the key areas. And I know as parents, that's one of our concerns. We would never want our young person to be bullied online. But we also want, probably would never want our child to be the bully or the person who's behaving in that way as well. So I think we often have to make sure we're having that side of the conversation. Um, the other key issue I think is around perpetrators online, really you know, targeting vulnerable young people. They're in every space where a young person plays and connects online with their friends. And it's very easy to pretend online. So we know that the cases of you know, perpetrators, people with malintent online grooming is really a big concern. And for those young people that don't have supervision or support from their their trusted adults or parents, maybe seeking some of those um, validations online that they might not be getting at home, um, unfortunately, they are a target of this. 
Trent's emphasis on supervision stands out to me because we know kids need to be monitored, and this is what the Council of Moms was talking about. We can't just give them a smartphone at 18 and say, good luck, but we also can't give them a smartphone at 11 and say, good luck. (laughs) In between, there's this need for progressive monitoring that responds to different kids' needs and stages and maturity with the goal that eventually they can do it on their own. Trent has some great advice for what we can do to set them up to succeed when they reach that point. So if we've determined that our young person is of an age where they're cognitively able to self-regulate and manage themselves on that platform, we've discovered what they could maybe be exposed to and we feel comfortable that they could see some of those things, which, you know, if you've done enough research, you probably realize that you're not too happy with them using that technology. And as a family, we might decide to delay access to that tool. But if you feel ready for your child to be on that space, so they're, you know, social media over the age of 13 and starting to use these platforms, model and sit down with them how to create a safe profile by not using a real photo as our profile photo, setting our account to private, turning off notifications so we're not distracted, making sure that we switch on things like um, turning off, um, you know, malintent content or, uh, you know, inappropriate and harmful content. There's There are settings within most of the apps and applications and games that kids play right now that you can turn on. They're just not set as default. So if we can go in and show them that no matter what we set up, if we get a brand new app, here's what we do to set this up safely for ourselves before we start using it. And that shows your kids, again, that they can have confidence in you, that you know that there are some things that we need to do. When you're setting up your safety settings, you can say, should we switch this on? Should we turn this off? Why might it be helpful for us to have this on? Why might it be safe for us to turn this off? All of those sorts of conversations become real and contextualized and great in-time learning. Trent's advice is twofold. He talked about safety settings and online savvy, but he also emphasized the need to teach kids to protect their emotional wellness. And I love something that Brooke said about this. Coming back to help your kids build their own awareness, spoiler alert, it's more talking. (laughs) She recommends certain open-ended questions and a few basic wellness rules. I would just reiterate an ongoing conversation for every stage that It's never something where it's like, okay, here you go. I put some screen time passcodes on, but it's like, how how are you feeling online? I love the phrase, I'm noticing that. So something like, hey, I'm noticing that you're spending a lot of time on your phone. Is there a reason for it? Do you need something else to do? I'm noticing that you're a little less happy to be together as a family. I'm noticing that you're spending a lot of time in your room gaming, um, Is there something I can do? Is there a way for me to help? You know, those types of things. The other thing, and and this is um, something that many professionals will say, is keeping phones out of private spaces is one of the best things that you can do for your family. So if you are going to allow technology, uh, that technology stays in family spaces, so it doesn't go into the bathroom, doesn't go into the bedrooms, it's for sure never behind a closed door. Um, It's always plugged in at night. I think those things can solve a lot, a lot, a lot of problems for families. I love Brooke's ideas. And let me just say, for anyone that finds this overwhelming, and by this, I mean the constant conversations and dialogues that everyone is recommending to help kids build their independence while staying safe. I get it. It's already exhausting. But Trent made a point that even though this all feels very big and important, the conversations don't have to be. It doesn't have to be formal, and it can't be once. 
The lighter and more casual, the better. We like to share stories with kids about our own personal experiences first. And I think that that opens up the window for them to maybe come to us and start speaking about these things as well. Um, There are a couple of strategies as an educator that we really encourage parents to do when it comes to having trickier conversations or you want to have a specific conversation with the child, but sometimes it can be awkward. Um, Having a face-to-face conversation with a young person can be quite intimidating. So even just being in your car when you're sitting and driving to school, for example, might be a really great way to be sitting in a more neutral sort of setting where you're just sitting next to each other. You don't have to look into their eyes. If they're feeling a bit embarrassed to talk about something, you've got that kind of environment where it feels a little safer for them. That is such a great idea. And that's why we made our podcast, the Did You Know podcast series, five-minute bite-sized conversations. And playing that on the radio in the car is designed to support parents start the chat. Hmm. So, oh, listen to this. This is topic about cyber safety on the radio right now. How do you go about, you know, setting your passwords? Or what do you do when someone that you don't know online asks to be your friend? And, you know, well, what would we do if we didn't, you know, if we did receive a friend request from someone we didn't know? How can we tell if they really are truly who they say they are? I think guiding questions are really helpful. Hearing Trent talk about this brings me back to where we started this episode. We need to ask better questions. You know, when I was starting to put this podcast together, I didn't realize how much of how I see parenting and technology comes from a place of fear. I realized that I was always looking at it from the place of protecting my kids from harmful people. But I realize now that it's a tool and a new technology like so many other things past generations were worried about. Yes, we might not be able to ask other generations about the connection between social media usage and depression or which app gathers what information. But we can ask them about initiating good, meaningful conversations with our kids and building relationships of trust. When we yell, there's trouble right here in River City with a capital T, they can look at us and say, yeah, we've been there and help us out. I really love doing this podcast, and I have a new appreciation for it with this episode. So often, modern parenting, especially when it comes to using and monitoring online usage, feels so isolating. But here I was able to talk with the Council of Moms, with moms who have specifically different parenting philosophies and experiences, come together, give me new perspectives, but most importantly, help me not feel so alone in it all. We really don't have to do things the exact same way to help encourage each other in taking care of our families. We really aren't alone in it. And another thing, speaking of parenting, I was also struck with how the decisions we make in our families and our parenting choices really do affect other families and our society at large. We don't parent in a vacuum. When we have these conversations with other parents about how hard this is, how we struggle and what we're trying, it tends to make us more generous in how we see others' differences and be less threatened by them. We compare less and trust others more. And the fact is, our choices can make it easier and happier for other families to stay safe and for kids to be protected. And there's something really encouraging and hopeful to me about that connection versus competition. Well, parenting is hard in the best circumstances. So when we find ourselves in the uncomfortable situations, is it just me? I'm constantly uncomfortable, no? Okay. 
then we know we need to connect. I mean, we're in this together. We're all making it up as we go along. And I hope you feel a little less alone in it after listening. Thanks for being part of this podcast. The Lisa Show is a production of BYU Radio, hosted by Lisa Valentine Clark and produced by Becca Hurley and McKay Menden with help from Avery Stonely and post-production by Gracie Davis and Josh Fouts. If you heard something you liked in this episode, please share it with a friend. And if you want to help us grow, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thanks. Thanks.